If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm chapter 37, Psalm chapter 37 and verse 4. If you've got your bulletin and there is an outline, a sermon outline, and the title of this sermon is going to be Your Greatest Happiness. So as you turn there, I just wanted to say my family was gone this past week to Atlanta, Georgia, where my folks live. So thanks for letting us get away. We had a great time climbing Stone Mountain, seeing our grandparents and aunts and uncles and lots of cousins. And uh, But, uh, you know, more than usual for some reason this time, I was just found myself missing you guys. I, I love serving as your pastor. I love hanging out with you. I love getting to know you and spending time together, whether it's in a small group setting or uh, meeting in my office or just hanging out as families over lunch. And I just want to say thank you so much for the privilege of of allowing me to be your pastor. It is great to be back in California. Great to be back with you this morning. And I'm looking forward to doing a little bit of a a two-part series before we get back into Ephesians on what your greatest happiness is, all right? So we're going to be in in this text this morning and and, uh, several other texts uh, kind of surrounding this idea of how you can find your greatest happiness as we begin our year of 2016. So look at Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the joy of delighting ourselves in God. Thank you for the privilege of hearing the preaching of your word. Thank you for the giving of your people. And I pray, God, as we listen to this message and as we participate in thinking through the scriptures that we'll look at, I pray that you would help us to find our greatest joy, our greatest happiness in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you a series of questions as we kind of kick off this morning, and I want you to think through uh, what your answer may be. And I think what you'll find is that maybe you'll find a common denominator. Okay, you ready? Here's question number one. The question is, why would anybody eat broccoli? I mean, think about it. Come on, it doesn't taste that good. Why would anybody eat broccoli? I remember as a kid growing up, I was always like a bad supper at our house if mama was cooking a big old pot of broccoli. I didn't like the way it smelled. I didn't like the way it tastes. And so the question is, why would anybody eat broccoli? The answer, because they want to. Right? It's healthy for you. It has a lot of vitamins for you. Some people enjoy eating things that they don't really love the taste of, though some of you love the taste of it, right? that they love eating it because they want to. Let me ask you this question. Why would anybody participate in the competition called the Ironman? You know what the Ironman is? It's where you swim for three miles, you bike on a bicycle for 112 miles, and then you run a marathon. I mean, just in case you hadn't got your morning exercise in, you run 26.2 miles to that marathon to end it in the race. Why why would anybody do that? Answer, because they want to, right? Some people love extreme sports, and they'll do anything to participate in a competition like that. Let me ask you this. Why would anybody get married? Why are you laughing? (laughs) because they want to, right? Marriage may not be popular in our culture, but it's popular with me. I married a beautiful, godly woman because I wanted to. Hopefully, if you're married, you wanted to as well. Let me ask you this. Why did anybody, uh, why would anybody become a pediatric neurosurgeon? Do you know how long it takes to become a pediatric neurosurgeon? You've got to go to college for four years. 
You've got to go to medical school for four years. You've got to go through a general surgery residency for five years. You then have to go through a pediatric surgery fellowship for two years. So then after that, you've got to do a three-year pediatric neurosurgery residency for a total of 18 years. And you thought grades K through 12 was tough. Can you imagine 18 more years after high school graduation? That's what some people do. Why would they do that? You could just work at CPK. Come on. Or you could do something like that, right? Why would you do that? Because you want to. I thank God for educated doctors, right? I thank God for educated people who are able to help people who have needs. So some people go through that much schooling because they want to. Let me ask you this. Why would anybody get into an argument? Now, I know you guys don't argue, but you know people who do, right? Why does anybody get into an argument as a husband and wife or as a parent and a teenager or a parent and a younger child? Why do you get into arguments? And the answer is because you want to. Come on, you guys are starting to get it. You, you think in that moment you're right and they're wrong. And that may be true, but you want to prove the fact that you're right and they're wrong. And so the two different sides get into an argument. Why, why would anybody um, have five kids? I mean, that's crazy, right? Most people have like 1.2 kids these days. Uh, Lisa and I have been blessed with five kids. Even when we were traveling to Georgia, we always get those looks at the airport. You know, we're sitting there going through security, and they're like, you know, are all these yours? And we're like, well, we left half of them at home, but we brought this half with us. And five's not even that much, right? In some Christian uh, churches, we even have folks in our church who have way more than five, right? We're so grateful for every family size, whether you got zero kids or five kids or 10 kids or 17 and counting, whatever it is. You know, the idea is uh, we have kids, right? Because we want to. Well, why, would anybody, um, why would anybody do missions? You guys know Shannon Hurley, who was a businessman right here in Southern California, made it big time, had a nice house, successful business, sold it all, moved to the middle of Kuba Metwe, Uganda, to a village with no electricity, no running water. Their house has those things because they brought it in through some solar power. But why would anybody do that? Answer? Because they wanted to. Right? They wanted to go to Uganda. They wanted to share the gospel with those who lived in that village. Let me ask you this last question. Why would anybody, like my friend William Bowman, who between 10th grade and 11th grade drove his truck out into the middle of the freeway at midnight, turned his lights off and waited until a semi-truck came and hit it head on, committed suicide? Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody take their life? Answer? Because they wanted to. That moment, they wanted to do that. And that's what all of these questions have in common, is people are doing what they want. And I think the question we should ask is, well, why are they doing what they want? And the answer is because they're doing what they believe would bring them the greatest happiness. They're doing what they think in that moment makes the most sense to them what they want to do to make them somehow feel better. People do what they want because it makes them happy. And we all do what we want because we believe in that moment, that's where we'll be somehow satisfied with that decision that we make. Consider this quote by Blaise Pascal. It's there on the PowerPoint for you. This is a theologian who states this, quote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. 
The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's what we're talking about. People do what they want, even if it means leading to their death. Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to affirm the human desire to be happy. And I want to make sure we balance that also with the Christian responsibility of being holy. And I want to show you this morning from God's word how being holy in God is also the same as being happy in God. And if you've heard this uh, type of teaching before, you're probably thinking a little bit about John Piper. So let me just go ahead and say that much of what I'm going to share with you this morning is right out of Desiring God, a classic work that Piper wrote, I believe now 25 to 30 years ago. And it really what he talks about in that book is really what I believe the scriptures teach. And I want to make a quick distinction, if I can, about uh, the difference between happiness and Christian joy, right? A lot of times as Christians, we say, well, the goal of life is not to be happy uh, because to be happy is often an emotion based on an experience or on a circumstance. And we as Christians are called to be joyful, which is about having a mindset uh, based in Christ. And we can be joyful whether we're happy or not. And I want to affirm that I think that distinction can be helpful, but I also think that distinction possibly takes it too far when we get away from the desire to be happy as if somehow it's always evil or always leads to that which won't satisfy. And the goal of my message this morning is simply to explain that it's okay to be happy if you're finding your happiness in God. Obviously, also, God's word is clear about being joyful and that our joy is found in Christ and in the person and work of Christ as far as him uh, going to the cross and being raised from the dead and accomplishing our salvation. And so I want to make sure that we don't get too into this idea like, well, it's about being joyful. Because I know a lot of Christians who I might say, hey, how's your day going? And they may say, well, I'm just being joyful in Jesus today, you know, kind of with tight lips. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound very happy. Well, I'm not happy, but I'm joyful. Thank God I'm joyful today. Well, look, I, I don't think that being joyful is some tight-lipped thing either. What I'm getting at is both our hearts and our will and our emotion, all of our inner man is to be rejoicing in the finished work of the cross. And what I'm really getting at here is what Piper describes as Christian hedonism. You say, well, Adam, can you say that word in church, hedonism? Well, yeah. I mean, it's really a coined expression uh, trying to grab your attention to talk about this fact that God commands in the Bible that we find our happiness, our greatest happiness in him. And this isn't something that was done, somehow invented by John Piper. This is taught by the Bible. This is uh, mentioned by Augustine. Certainly it's brought out by Jonathan Edwards in The Pleasures of God. It's also brought up by C.S. Lewis in his sermon series, The Weight of Glory. It's just that Piper somehow contemporized this whole idea even in his book, Desiring God. And basically, he's the one that talks about Christian hedonism. You guys know what hedonism is, right? According to Webster, hedonism is the doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the sole or chief good in life. So the idea of being hedonistic is simply about you trying to find your pleasure 
in something in this life that will bring you the greatest happiness. And whatever that may be, that may be alcohol, that may be money, that may be an illicit relationship, but the idea of being hedonistic means do whatever you want that will make you happy. Okay, that's hedonism. The idea of being a Christian has somewhat to do with the idea of denial, right? That we deny ourselves those things that we want to do because we come to Christ and we repent from worldly pleasures and we find our pleasure in God. And part of being a Christian should be describing someone who believes by faith in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, who, who then that person follows faithfully all that's taught in the Bible. And so if you put those two words together, Christian hedonism, you get the idea of a Christian who pursues their pleasure not in the world, but they pursue their pleasure in God, right? You pursue your pleasure in that which truly satisfies. You pursue your pleasure or your joy or your happiness in God. And so the question I'm asking is, is that true? Is that really what God's called us to do is find our joy or our happiness, our pleasure in God? Well, the writers of the Westminster Catechism believe that's true, that's why they state in the first question of the catechism there behind me, you know this is a, a statement written by, in the 1640s by pastors and theologians, and the Westminster Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, you see it there on the screen, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, if you're not careful, it almost feels like they're saying two things, that the chief end of man is two things, and it's not one thing. And that's why, commenting on this, Piper uh, states this. He says, and like bacon and eggs, like sometimes you glorify God, and sometimes you enjoy him. Sometimes he gets glory, and sometimes you get joy, and is a very ambiguous word. Just how do these two things relate to each other? Did the writers of this great confession believe that there are two chief ends or just one? I mean, the question is, what is the chief end of man? Singular, not plural. So glorifying God and enjoying God are somehow one and the same. It's one thing, not two. But the question may be, well, how can this be? Well, that's what this message is all about. This message is about showing you how glorifying God by obeying him and enjoying him shouldn't be seen as two different things. You see, the idea, again, of Christian hedonism would be like, well, the things I really want to do, I can't do. Like, I'd really like to do this and have this experience and buy this and do this, but I can't do that because I'm a Christian. And so since I'm a Christian, I guess I won't have a lot of fun and I won't have a lot of happiness because it's my duty to be holy, and so therefore I go through the Christian life meditating on what I shouldn't do and what I should do, because that's what Christians do. Well, the idea behind Christian hedonism is like, well, now, if that's your mindset, you've, you've got it all wrong, right? The idea of Christianity is not duty alone. It's duty motivated by delight, it's appreciating God and the gospel to such a degree that you want to obey him, not because you have to, but because you want to, right? So we shouldn't care so much about what these theologians say as much as we care about what God says. And so what does God's word say about devoting oneself to God? I mean, certainly the Christian life in the Bible is not about cold external obedience, but it's about warm 
internal worship. And what does God have to say about the chief end of man? Well, maybe we could wrap up what God says about it in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we see, again, this isn't just a theological statement. This is a simple biblical truth that our chief end, what we should do, whether we're eating or drinking, is glorifying God. And I think the question is, well, how do we glorify God? Do we glorify God just by doing our duty of Christian obedience? Or are we also called to glorify God by delighting in the gospel? Uh, Maybe I could paint the picture this way. Let's say that you have a teenage son or daughter at home, and you tell them it's time for them to go clean their room. And they were just about to head out the door to go spend some time with friends. And you say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, over my dead body, you go clean your room, young man. And so your 16-year-old son begrudgingly walks into his room, closes the door, begins to pick up those clothes off the floor that have been lying there for days. And he begins to tidy up his room. And he is so upset that he can't go out with his friends because you're making him clean his room. So let me ask you, in that moment... Is that teenager glorifying God? In that moment, are are they obeying your your directive to clean their room? Yes. Are they doing it with a happy heart? No. So is God being glorified or is he not being glorified? This is precisely why we're getting at this point. You can't just say that, well, as long as you do what Christians are supposed to do, God's going to be okay with it, and that's just the way it is. No, 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 no. Christianity is so much better and so much deeper than just about external obedience. It's not only about your action, it's about your attitude. And that's why God has called us to find our joy in doing what we do for God's glory, even when it's tough. I mean, this isn't just for teenagers, right? This is true of me and of you. Right? I mean, how do you think I feel if my wife were to say, hey, can you uh, stop by Walmart on your way home again today? And I'm thinking, oh, man, I, I, I'm tired of stopping by Walmart. I remember a couple of years ago, I was trying to be nice to my wife, and uh, I decided to clean the shower, uh, which I've done like once in our 11 and a half years of marriage. Uh, but for some reason, she was pregnant. She was like, can you just clean the shower? I'm like, baby, I can do that. I love you, baby. I'll clean that shower. So, of course, I ask her how, like, what supplies do you use? Where's the brush? All this stuff. I get in the shower, and I'm just, like, rubbing up, you know, just scrubbing this thing. And I can't tell it's doing any good, right? You have some spots in there sometimes, and they don't just come off. You know, I thought you'd walk in and scrub it, and it's, like, white as snow. You know, and you go in there, and you're like, and I just found myself getting mad. I'm like, this is so dumb. Why do people clean their house? Why do people clean their shower? Who cares? You can't even tell what you're doing. And then I started realizing, you know what? I'm supposed to be finding my joy right now in God, serving my wife, doing something for somebody else. And so it's not good enough just to serve somebody if you're not serving them with the right attitude, right? Maybe you're the wife and you get tired of washing clothes and putting clothes away and washing the dishes and putting the dishes away. And you start thinking, can't somebody in this house help me out? Well, again, if you begin to serve in a way that doesn't show true joy and happiness in God, then we're missing out on what that complete obedience looks like, right? That's why we try to teach our kids, you need to be obeying right away, all the way, with a happy heart, right? Now, we can't make them have a happy heart. That's got to be the Spirit of God doing a miraculous thing in their lives, right, to first save them and then help them understand this is true joy. Even work is joy, right? My dad used to say, work is fun. 
And I'm like, what are you talking about, Dad? It's not fun pulling weeds in the garden. And he's like, yes, it is. Work is fun. And he's like, you know, trying to make it fun. I'm like, Dad, it's not fun. That's just dumb. Don't do that. You know, and he's like, no, work is fun. But you get the idea is you've got to learn to enjoy what it is God's called you to do. And this is exactly why the next PowerPoint slide says this. Piper suggests that maybe this would be a better way to say the, uh, the catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God instead of and by enjoying him forever. Like, how do you glorify God? You glorify God by enjoying him so that we don't uh, dissect these two concepts in our mind. One is glorifying and one is enjoying, and they happen at different times. The idea is like, no, you glorify God by enjoying him in that moment. It's like, well, how, how do you glorify a cook? Do you glorify a cook just simply by eating their food? Or do you glorify a cook by thinking, mm, mm, this is so good. I mean, I, I married a great cook. I married a, a wife who has a degree from the master's college in home economics. And let me tell you something. She is a gourmet cook. She cooks wonderful meals. And we sometimes uh, whip up a, a nice meal. She will. I'm not a good cook. She'll, she'll make a delicious meal, some type of chicken or fish or, 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 or barbecue or whatever with some vegetables, some of that broccoli I was talking about, or some uh, asparagus or, or, you know, some potatoes or salad. And sometimes our kids, you know, they haven't learned to cultivate always, you know, that, that, that fine dining taste. And so uh, they might on occasion say, I just want uh, chicken nuggets. You know, give me some chicken nuggets uh, or something like that. You know how kids can be at times. Look, you, you know, the idea is that our kids haven't sometimes learned that. Maybe you haven't learned either to accept things in life that would be good for you to accept as being from the good and gracious gift of God. Even if you feel like God is serving you meatloaf. What you need to understand is God doesn't do anything wrong. He's always preparing through his providence the perfect situation for you to be in at any given moment. And you have an opportunity to either receive that and enjoy life, thereby glorifying the creator of life, or you could just sit there and complain and wish that you had something else. Wish that you were served up something else. And so that's why in this message, it's so important for us to understand uh, some of these, uh, this, these concepts. And which is why I want to point you to these seven passages. All right, I've been talking for a little bit. Let me show you in the Bible where you could find some of this to be true. See if you don't see it for yourself. Psalm 32. Look at Psalm 32 and verse 11. I'm going to give you again seven passages that demonstrate that God desires that you find joy in him. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Well, notice there's the word joy. We talked about Christian joy, but there's also a word glad, which has a little bit more of an emphasis on the emotion, the idea that you're glad in the Lord and you're shouting for joy. Notice it's also in the imperative, the idea that we're commanded, in a sense, to be glad in the Lord. Uh, turn over to chapter 37, Psalm 37. This is the verse we read, familiar verse, the beginning of the message. Delight yourself in the Lord, 37.4, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Sometimes as Christians, I think we come to that verse and we think, oh, okay, well, good. Well, if I kind of delight myself in the Lord and ask him to save me and ask him to help me, then he'll give me what I really want. If I'm, if I'm good to God, he'll be good to me. Well, that's the wrong way to read that verse. Understand that verse rather with the idea of Christian hedonism. And what I mean is this. When you delight yourself in the Lord, 
He will give you the desire of your heart, and the desire of your heart is Him. It's Him being exalted in your situation. It's Him being exalted through His Word. It's Him teaching you, even through trials, how to love Him and trust Him. The desire of your heart is to be happy, and you can only be happy when you're being holy by delighting yourself in God in the Lord, in his word, in all that he has for you as he ordains every day that comes to you. Turn over to the New Testament to John 15, 11. John 15, 11, here we have Jesus teaching what it means to, to have joy. And in John 14, 15, he said, uh, if you love me, you will obey me. So there's also some emphasis here on glorifying God through obedience, a duty, right? Uh, John 14, 15, again, if you love me, you will obey me or you will keep my commandments. But then if you look at John 15, starting in verse 9, he says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I love that verse, right? As the Father has loved me with this unbelievable love, in the same way that the Father loves the Son, so have I loved you. Then he says, abide in my love. And then he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, if you just read those two verses, you're starting to get the idea, well, see there, Christianity is about doing and don't, do's and don'ts, right? It's about, it's about obeying the commandments. That's what Christ says. He says, I obey my Father's commandments, therefore you obey my commandments. That's how you abide in my love. Well, those things are true, but notice the rationale given in verse 11 these things I have spoken to you so that you may be a dutiful Christian. Is that what it says? It says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The reason to do your duty is so that you can experience true delight. The reason that we do what God's commanded us to do is because God wants us to be joyful. He wants us to be satisfied. I would go as far as to say he wants us to be happy. He doesn't want us to experience non-emotion. He wants to experience every emotion that he gives to us in him. Let's move on. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. This is what we do each Sunday, right? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if you're obeying God by giving of your first fruits on a regular basis, that's what God's word says we ought to be doing. Let me ask you, are you doing so begrudgingly or are you doing so based on compulsion or are you doing so cheerfully? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And so we understand it's in obeying God that he's glorified. It's when we obey him by enjoying him that he's glorified to the extent that God desires to be. How about Philippians 4.4? 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, right? Again, it's commanded there that we would rejoice in God, that we rejoice in the Lord always, not just when things are going well, but even during difficult times that we rejoice in him. How about Hebrews 13, 17? It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there he's talking to elders, uh, to shepherds of the church, and he's saying, hey, look, you need to be governing 
overseeing, providing care for your flock with joy. And so the flock can help by submitting to the leadership of the church, but the idea is that it's not to be done out of duty or with groaning, it's to be done with joy. Or how about James? Look at James chapter 1, verses um, 2 through 4. There we read again uh, the whole idea of count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You may say, well, how in the world am I supposed to have joy in the midst of trials? Well, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, that certainly brings joy, right? When we're being made perfect and complete, we're no longer lacking in anything. Well, that comes by counting it joy, even when you face trials of all kinds. I'm just trying to show you a few passages, seven of them right here, that just kind of help us see that these truths are biblical. And now what I want to do is just help you pursue your joy in God as a philosophy of life built on these five convictions that I've taken and adapted somewhat from Desiring God, the book. All right, here's the first one. All right, number one, longing to be happy is good. Here's your first blank if you're taking notes. The desire to be happy is innate. That just simply means the longing to be happy is a universal experience and is good, not sinful. In other words, God created us with a common desire to be happy. No matter where I go in the world, Honduras, Brazil, Russia, Uganda, Singapore, China. By the grace of God, I've traveled many places, and I noticed the same thing with all the kids Wherever I am, the children are looking for happiness, and they're smiling, and they're joking with one another, and they're talking, and they love attention, and they love you to interact with them because it's an innate desire to be happy. That's just the way God made us. There's nothing wrong with, what, with wanting to be happy. That's part of our God consciousness. There, there's something in us that wants to be happy, and that's true of all cultures, and it's true of all times. But we could also say not only is longing to be happy, that desire is innate. Secondly, the desire to be happy is not a sin. You can't say that it's a sin for you to want to be happy. Pleasure is not sin. Pursuing joy is not sin. In fact, it's commanded. That's what we've been talking about with, from those verses. To rejoice in the Lord is a command. And so it's not a sin. I believe that the Bible affirms your desire to be happy just as it affirms creation. Just as you're affirmed to be created the image of God that you would not only be holy, but that you would also be happy. I mean, jot down Proverbs 15, 13. It says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. I mean, it's just true. The desire to be happy is a good thing. Embrace your desire to be happy. But secondly, look at number two, seek your happiness in that which will provide the deepest satisfaction. Your next blank is pursue your greatest desire, right? If we're going to be pursuing happiness because it's a good thing, then we want to do that which provides deep satisfaction. So I'm saying that we need to pursue our greatest desire. We should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse, Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. And I mean that. I'm, I'm challenging you this morning 
to be happy with whatever will bring you the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. C.S. Lewis preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory, and in the sermon he states this, the quote is behind me, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. You know what he's saying? C.S. Lewis is as if he's saying, hey, wake up. I, I, you're talking about being happy, but the Bible also says you've got to deny yourself. And so he's saying, true. That's true. The Bible does say to deny yourself, but that's not the end goal. Christianity is not about just denying yourself and that's it. No, Christianity is about denying yourself of that which won't satisfy and then being filled with that which does satisfy. Even Luke 9.23, where he's talking about this verse, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you just read that verse, you'll say, see there, it's not about being happy. You just got to deny yourself and follow Christ to the death. And I would say, amen, I agree with that. But notice verse 24 says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So what Christ is saying is like, yeah, you got to deny yourself because I want you to gain eternal life. I've got something so much bigger and greater and lasting that you can have and enjoy. Here's the point what Lewis is getting at, the next click there on the PowerPoint. If, if there lurks in the most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. In other words, he's saying, look, if you think that being happy isn't right and our only goal is denial, that's not biblical Christianity, that's uh, humanism. That's the Stoics and Kant who would say that you're supposed to experience no happiness, right? But Lewis goes on to say, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Right? The problem is that we don't desire enough. We're satisfied with the things of this world when we should be satisfied with the gospel. We're made happy by the simple fleeting pleasures of materialism when we should find eternal pleasures in the gospel. The problem is not that our desires are too strong. The desires are that they are too weak, which is why the outline here says to the next point, do not be so easily pleased. Don't be so easily pleased. Lewis says, next click on the PowerPoint, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. Isn't that so true? We're just pleased playing in the mud when we could have all the glories of Calvary. 
We are pleased with the fleeting things of this world when every spiritual blessing is given to us in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 1.3, right? We are so easily pleased with just physical experiences when we can have a spiritual experience with God through the gospel and through walking in the light that you can be satisfied forever because the idea is that this world cannot please you. So we need to be seeking that that provides the deepest satisfaction, that's why I love Psalm 1611. You can just jot that one down if you want. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you've got to make up your mind. Do you want to have temporary pleasure for a moment that fades and leaves you lower? Or do you want to have eternal pleasures that last forevermore? Those pleasures are found in the presence of God, which is exactly why the third point is this. Your deepest happiness is found only in God. And your next blank says this, not from God, but in God. Right? That's the point. The deepest and most enduring happiness is found in God. We don't come to God for the things he gives to us. We come to God for God. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew 13, 44 through 46, this familiar parable that Jesus teaches makes this point. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you know what the treasure is? Do you know what that one pearl is? That's an that's a, that's a, a expression of the gospel. That's an expression of, of God himself. He is our treasure. That's Christ. That's who we have. We have this treasure from Christ. We have this pearl of great value. And so why would we be looking for happiness outside of God when we find happiness inside of God? Be says God is most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in him. That's probably Piper's most famous statement in the book, right? The idea that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Piper goes on to say that sin is what you do when you are not satisfied in God. Right? When you're not finding your satisfaction in God, then you're looking for satisfaction outside of God. And if you're looking for satisfaction outside of God, then you're not glorifying God by enjoying Him. When you are satisfied in God with your joy, your heart, your mind, your emotions, then God will be most glorified in you. And so let me just ask you, do you really believe this is true? When you're down on a typical day, how do you try to lift your spirits? Do you get a cup of coffee? Do you have a drink of wine? Do you go buy something? Do you go work out? Do you bark at the kids? Do you clean the house? Do you study for the test? I mean, those things could be all good things to do, but they don't replace where your happiness comes from. I, I knew a man once at a different church who told me that, that in the midst of his depression, he found joy just by buying something on Amazon. I appreciated his honesty. He's like, hey, Adam, I'm depressed, but when I buy something on Amazon makes me feel good. And at least for that one hour, I forget about my troubles. I'm like, hey, dude, you better, you better start making a lot of money, right? Because you got to keep that feeling. You got to keep buying and buying and buying. You're going to go into some serious debt. And that's also, by the way, called idolatry. 
right? The idea that you're finding your happiness in things instead of in God. And so these things don't lead us to happiness. The problem is we have forgotten what the prophet Jeremiah says to the Jews, right? At Jeremiah 2.13, when he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You get the idea? Basically, what we've done, same sins that we've fallen into, is that we've abandoned the fountain of living water, and we've gone out and made a cistern, a reservoir, where we try to stick water in there, thinking that that will satisfy us. Well, he says those cisterns, they can't hold water. Not forever. They may hold water for a little while. Eventually, it's going to evaporate. It's going to seep out. You've got to come to the fountain. You've got to come to the fountain, and here we are looking for things to satisfy us when we could be satisfied with God. And so let me ask you this morning, are you seeking your happiness in that which will provide the deepest satisfaction? Or is it for you, you're holding out until you get that new car, till you get that new house, till you have that baby, till you pass that test, till you get that promotion at work, until your marriage is finally what you want it to be. You can't hold out for anything. Come to the living fountain of God and take in that which truly satisfies, which is God himself. And this moves us to the next point, number four. This happiness in God grows as we share it with others. The happiness we find that God reaches, it's consummation when it is shared with others in the manifold ways of love and fellowship. Once we taste of something good, we want something, somebody else to taste of something good. I mean, I mean how, many, how many of you guys wanted to spend Christmas by yourself? And you're like, hey, the way I'm happy on Christmas is if I'm just like in my house, in my apartment by myself, I buy myself one present that I really wanted and I open it and I say, Merry Christmas to me. How many of you guys think that's the perfect Christmas? Anybody? No. We want to share gifts and time and family and friends with others as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And we do so by expressing gifts to one another and time together over special meals to give thanks to God and for one another. That's how we share our happiness. And what I'm saying is our happiness grows as we share it with others. Your next blank in the outline says exactly that, sharing your happiness in God with others increases your happiness. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. You know what he's saying? Half the fun just comes from the experience. Hey, we went to the game. The other half of the fun comes from sharing that with somebody else. That's why we're all Facebooking it, right? Oh, look at me. I'm at the game. Blah, blah, blah. You know, because you don't want to just have that with yourself. You want to share it with somebody else. So how much greater is the gospel, which we hold in our hearts, ought to be shared with somebody else? It's when you're evangelizing and discipling and you're studying God's word, you're sharing those truths with others that that happiness in God begins to increase. It begins to grow. The next blank is this. Melancholy worship is an oxymoron. I mean, the idea here is what Piper again states in Desiring God. Worship is adoration, and we adore only what delights us. There is no such thing as sad adoration or unhappy praise. Get the idea? 
that we're supposed to be worshiping God because that's where we find our happiness. You can't have melancholy worship. That's why Psalm 95.2 says, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. That's why Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. That's why Psalm 117, 1 and 2 says, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This is what God's called us to do as we share this truth with others. It increases in our own heart. This is true in singing. Right? You might like to sing in your car to a worship song or in the shower, and that's all good. But it's something about corporate worship that we're singing together. We share that joy together. This is true in preaching. When we sit under the preaching of God's word, we share our hearts, resonate with the truth of the gospel together. This is true in giving, that we give. And as we give together, it increases our joy. This is true in evangelism, that when you're out at the campus or you're in your neighborhood and you're sharing the gospel, your joy grows. This is true in fellowship, that you're sharing Christ's joys together in your small group, in conversations together. This is true in living your life, all aspects of your life you're living to the glory of God. Well, the last conviction I want to share with you this morning is this. Number five, the pursuit of pleasure in God is necessary to worship God. What we're saying is this. If you're not finding pleasure in God, you're not worshiping him. You might be obeying him externally. You may be checking off the box. You may be in God's word every day. But if you're not being transformed into a true worshiper, which means you take your pleasure in God, then that's not worship. To the extent we try to abandon the pursuit of our own pleasure, we fail to honor God and love people. Or to say it positively, the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of worship and virtue. And that's why we say the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We could even say this, your next blank, the quest for happiness in God is not optional, it's commanded. We understand as a response to this message, you can't just be like, oh, well, I'm still kind of have a melancholy spirit. That's just the way I am. No, a message like this reminds us like I must delight in God. Why? Because he commands me to. Psalm 37, 4 that we've already discussed, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Remember, I'm telling you your desire, your greatest desire is to be satisfied. And that's why we're delighting in him. Or how about, again, John 15, 11. We've already looked at it. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How about Philippians 4, 4 that we read earlier? Rejoice, the imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How about the James 1, 2? Count it all joy. These things are commanded of us. And so God can help us as we obey him to experience the joy that he desires to give us. And that's why I would say B here, the next blank, is the quest for happiness in God is not dismal, it's delightful. It's not like God is trying to tell you to do something that's hard to do. It is not hard, hard to delight in God. And you say, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. Sometimes I have trouble delighting in God. Well, would you rather delight in hell? Because that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. The wages of our sin is death. We deserve hell. All we got to do is meditate on that truth. And all of a sudden, we begin to delight in God. God, thank you that I don't have to go to hell. 
Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for giving me the gospel. Well, that's now you're delighting in God. You begin to get out of your depression by delighting in God. And so this quest and this commandment to somehow delight in God, it's not like God said, now you got to do it. It's going to be really hard, but you got to do it. No, he's like, hey, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you will never find satisfaction in this world. Come to Christ today. Start your year off tasting and seeing that he is good. Turn from your sin. You've been looking for satisfaction in that relationship and in that job and in that experience and in that vacation and in your retirement. You'll never find it, but you will in God. Come to him this very day and realize that even as a Christian, as you're commanded to obey God, it's not to be a drudgery. That's why I love 1 John 5, 3 that says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, right? We're not talking about living a burden-filled Christian life. We're talking about changing your perspective to realize that what you really desire is satisfaction. Satisfaction is only found when you're glorifying God by enjoying God. I've given this illustration before, but it kind of reminds me of the idea that you're super hungry you go to a restaurant, you order your favorite steak, you sit there and you eat your steak and you eat your loaded baked potato and you eat your salad and, and maybe a little bit of asparagus or whatever vegetable you choose, all right? You eat a little bit of all that and then the, the waitress, she comes out, you know, with the, with the pan and she's got like all this, these desserts on there and here's some tiramisu and here's, you know, some of this and some of this and you're just like, I don't need that. I am satisfied. Now I know for some of you ladies out there, you're like, yeah, I'll take some of that. I'll, get, I'll take the tiramisu Well, you didn't eat enough steak, right? If you ate enough steak, you'd be satisfied. My point being, if you really are filled up with God, nothing else is desirable. If you're really filled up with God and his word, then you are so filled with joy and contentment and satisfaction, you're not even looking for something else in this world. So how can you practically apply this as we leave. Well, in that take-home section of your notes, we're talking about this. Christian hedonism is not just a philosophy to be discussed. It is a principle to be implemented. Let me encourage you when you leave here today that you don't get caught debating whether you agree with John Piper or not. Okay? Let me encourage you when you leave here today that you don't get caught up thinking, well, I wouldn't call it Christian hedonism. Blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what this sermon's about. It's about understanding that you are called to delight in God and that, that, that it's to be implemented in your life. This isn't just something we talk about. This is something to practice while you're scrubbing the shower this week, right? While you're at work this week, you're like, ah, oh, I want to learn to find my joy. I'm not feeling joy right now. I must have a rotten attitude. And this isn't glorifying God, therefore I'm not enjoying him. Let me think biblically about my circumstances. Let me think biblically about my Savior, Number two, sanctification is not a grind. It provides the opportunity to find the greatest joy possible on earth. You know, in other words, things happen in life, and you're like, well, that's for your sanctification. You know, you typically go through a trial. Somebody's like, well, that's just sanctifying you. Well, stop seeing it as like it's a grind. It's an opportunity to find your greatest joy possible, and it's not found on earth. Obviously, it's found in God, right? So sanctification, becoming more like Christ is the best thing you could do. How about this? Number three, the Christian life is about duty 
but it is also about delight. My greatest fear is that somebody would listen to a sermon like this, and they would say, well, Adam said it. He said you should only do it if it makes you happy. I don't feel like obeying right now, therefore I'm not going to obey, because if I'm not obeying with the right attitude, God's not being glorified, therefore I won't obey. Okay? If that's your conclusion, you are wrong. Okay? You obey no matter what. And there are many times it does feel like a duty at first. You do what God says, whether you feel like it or not. And as you're doing it, you begin to just confess, God, I need to feel joy in you, in my obedience to you. God, I want to find my joy in God. Right now, I don't feel like eating this meatloaf, but I know this meatloaf is good for me. And so help me in this moment to turn this feeling of frustration into gratitude. Help me to be thankful that you've provided this opportunity for me to grow. And so let me just ask you, are you looking to have a good year or a bad year? Sometimes we think, well, what kind of things are going to happen to me in 2016? Will I finally get married? Will I finally get the job? Will I graduate? Will I get the new car, the new house? Look, those are all circumstantial. Let me ask you this. If you want to have a good year this year, it comes down to you getting this, getting the truth of God's word that you can be satisfied in God. And so how do you find your greatest happiness it's by learning that it is about duty and delight. It's not about duty with no delight. Neither is it about delight with no duty. It's about finding the balance between those two. And as you follow Christ and obey God's word this year, you will find that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. So what is your greatest happiness Hopefully you'll find that it is God and his son, Jesus Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, belonging in the family of our triune God, being saved of your sin and walking in the joy of our Lord. And as you share that with others and all the experiences of your life, you're going to have a great year. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would allow us to really think and meditate on what we've talked about. I know it's a little bit heady maybe to think through some of those verses and some of those principles about delighting and still uh, being dutiful. And so, God, would you give us that, that balance that you want us to about what it really means to delight ourselves in you, delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, to be glad in the Lord and to shout for joy. Would you allow us as a church to be a, a church that truly is not easily satisfied with the things of this world, but rather we're looking for satisfaction in God. Lord, we don't want to be like those, those children playing in the slums with the mud pies. We want to be going out to the sea for a holiday as we feast on the goodness and the greatness of God through the gospel and through the person and work of Jesus Christ being filled with the Spirit, experiencing the joy that you give through your gospel, through your word, God. So I pray for our body this morning that you would help us to think through these things, to talk about these things, to grow in these things, to share your love, your joy, the happiness that we find in you with others. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite the men to come.